But the book I've been listening to recently over and over again is the Game of Thrones series. I feel like there's something there in the way our politics has changed to where now it just feels way more pointless, I guess is the word I'm like, looking Way for. more Cersei. It's not, it's not Littlefinger, you know, chaos is the ladder. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know. Wait, don't how did I get trapped in the middle of a Game of Thrones conversation? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Galen, I didn't Reset, sign up for this. Reset, I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. Has the time come to dethrone Iowa in the presidential primary starting lineup? After a disastrous 2020 Iowa caucus and years of grumbling before that, the Democratic National Committee entertained a draft proposal earlier this month that would shake up which states vote first in the presidential primary. The proposal wasn't ultimately considered at the DNC's meeting in March, but the conversation isn't going away. So today, we're going to use the criteria in that draft proposal to look at how the calendar could change if the party pursues reforms in the future. We're also going to discuss where public opinion stands on accepting Ukrainian refugees and how it could evolve. The White House announced last week that the U.S. would accept 100,000 refugees, and so far, Americans and citizens throughout the West are overwhelmingly supportive of such moves. We'll look at research that suggests why support is so high and why that might change with time. And for today's good or bad use of polling, we're going to scrutinize a new survey that suggests most Americans think The West Wing and many other political TV shows are reflective of how politics actually work. Here with me to discuss is managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you. Also here with us is senior writer Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So let's begin with our good or bad use of polling example on political TV shows. And this comes from Ipsos. So their conclusion from a recent survey was, quote, Overall, Americans feel that TV shows about politics accurately portray real life. In particular, the public feels West Wing is the most realistic show about politics, more so than any other series about politics, like Veep and Parks and Rec. In the poll, the shows that they asked about were The West Wing, Veep, House of Cards, Parks and Rec, Scandal, The Good Wife, 24, The Crown, and Madam Secretary. The West Wing had the highest number of Americans who believe it is realistic at 51%, and Veep had the lowest at 27%. They do acknowledge, though, that, quote, Americans under 35 are more likely to feel that newer shows like Veep and Parks and Rec are more realistic than their older counterparts do. It may be in part because their older counterparts are familiar with those shows. So this flies in the face of the conventional wisdom amongst politicos who claim that while Veep is the most absurd of these shows, it is also the most realistic. There's a lot we can talk about here, including your opinions of these shows. Jeffrey, kick us off. Is this a good or bad use of polling? I think it's an okay use of polling in the sense that it's interesting to see what people think is realistic or not about TV shows about politics. However, what I do think is sort of interesting is that while it's measuring how much people view politics to be like these TV shows and you know whether those TV shows reflect reality. I sort of wonder if it really just 
more conveys how much like television influences the way people see politics. And if you think about like our politics today, there's so much in like what's going on in DC where people do things for PR reasons and they, they make a speech on the floor of the Senate that ends up going viral or something. And it's all about like communicating to the public in a certain way. So I, I don't know, for me, it was just sort of, I kind of wonder if the way people view TV shows as politics is it's really like almost the other way in terms of like the direction arrow. And they sort of use TV shows as a way of framing what happens in reality. Okay. I think that's right. I think the, I think there's a lot of people who probably do view these, some of these shows as realistic, not because they are realistic, but because their understanding of politics comes from these shows, not from politics itself. So that, that makes total sense to me for what it's worth. I thought this was an absolutely great use of polling. I love questions like this. They're just just a fun question. I didn't think there was all that much of a difference in the shows. I was surprised to see the West Wing had the highest share of people saying it was realistic, but the numbers weren't that different than many of the other shows. I mean, let's just correct the American people here. The West Wing is not at all realistic, right? I mean, that's that's silly. As a, you know, someone who's watched the West Wing through like seven or eight times in my life. And oh my God. I agree that it is it is not realistic, especially in our much more polarized political era. However, I do think it has more of the trappings of realism. And so maybe that's why people view it that way. You know, it's like delving yeah. into real issues, talking about them. Maybe, you know, social security doesn't get solved in, in one episode like it does in the show, but nonetheless, addressing that issue and, and the debates about it are realistic, you would say, maybe. And I think it's maybe more about the vibe of the show rather than is the day-to-day. Because, like, nobody knows what politicians actually do all day. Legislators, like, spend a lot of time just, like, calling donors. Like, it would make terrible, terrible TV. But I'll say this. I So I've never seen The West Wing, but I gather that it is serious is that a fair yeah. way to describe the vibe? Like it's like yeah. it's a drama. A very like like fast talking, like earnest, earnest, earnest American good. democracy, right? So I think like that's maybe how people think. It's like more about how they think their politicians approach the job rather than is the kind of day to day. And maybe that explains why people think Veep isn't so realistic because I don't know. Do people really think their elected officials approach? their work with such extreme pettiness. I don't know if well, that's how, like, you know. They should. We as, like, jaded people who spend all our time thinking about politicians, of course we think that. But, you know, if you only think about politics during election years, like, not very much, like, do you really think they're just sniping about haircuts and, like, cursing at each other constantly? But, Amelia, don't we have lots of polling data that shows many people in the country think of their elected officials as, like, horrible, useless and that's why there's support for outsider candidates such as Trump in 2016, right? But I don't think they think that they're petty. Like, this explains to me why House of Cards, people thought House of Cards was so realistic because, like, I saw that and I was just like, do people think people are being murdered? 
yeah, all that, the time it's in absurd, DC. Like, absurd. <laughs> no, no one thinks that. But like, I think it's like this sort of like gravitas, this sort of like they're bad people, but they're bad people in a serious way rather than bad people in a fighting with each other over who gets access to the better office. And thing. those politicians are cunning and calculated and, you know, they're they're devious and they're figuring like, I guess with House of Cards, you could see that coming through, maybe not so much the actual things right, that they do. Or they're corrupt or, yeah. you know. Okay. I want to add some data to this conversation. I mentioned a couple numbers at the top, and that was when the poll just asked people straight up, is this realistic or not? And that was data, including a lot of people saying that they didn't actually know the show and so couldn't really give an opinion. They also have a separate tab where they break out who thinks it's realistic or not based solely on people who have seen the show. So for The West Wing, amongst people who are aware of the show, 71% say it's realistic, 29% say not realistic. For Veep, for people who are aware of the show, it's 52% realistic, 48% not realistic. Uh, You mentioned House of Cards, so that's 66% realistic, 34% not realistic. Uh, there's some. That's crazy. Some, Can we pause there for a the second? Vibe. That is crazy. It's the vibe. Like I think when people say is a TV show realistic, they're not like nobody thinks that people are getting murdered. But it's this sort of the atmosphere and the dealing. It's all. I mean, House of Cards is a lot about sort of like wheeling and dealing power. Yeah, like the wheeling and dealing. Right. It's like corruption and yeah. People don't actually believe that faux BuzzFeed reporters are getting pushed onto, you know, subway tracks or whatever happens in that one episode. (laughs) But Micah, can we talk about Veep? Because a little birdie told me that you either currently or at least at some point in your life used to watch Veep every night to fall asleep. Is this true? I I would like to fact check live on the podcast. So so I go through rotations where shows that I've seen already, I will watch over and over again to fall asleep. So it's basically like a way of shutting my brain off. So for example, Veep has been one of those shows. At one point, Reno 911 was one of those shows. Parks and (laughs) Rec. Parks and Rec was actually one of those Parks shows. Parks and Rec makes sense. Yeah, yeah Reno like 911 is show. Reno 911. It's just stuff I've seen before, you know, that, that yeah. How realistic of law enforcement is Reno 911? <laughs> Very realistic, somewhat realistic, not realistic at all. What's actually funny about this is I was going to bring this up is I do the same thing with audiobooks when I walk my dog, when I'm like stressed out. I listen to an audiobook that I've heard before. So I like it doesn't engage my brain and my I just sort of like go into a daze. So if you ever see me walking on the street and I'm just like walking into people, that's why. This is like sort of white noise. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the book I've been listening to recently over and over again is the Game of Thrones series, which there I feel like there's a really interesting question. That series portrays a lot of different people exercising power in different ways. And I feel like there is a really interesting poll question. Maybe you just poll people who have read the books or seen the show, but like who in our politics, in the books at least, like Cersei Lannister is power hungry and manipulative, but she doesn't have some like end goal in mind really, other than she's trying to protect her children. But even that, it's sort of weird. It's it's kind of this 
pointless power exercising, as opposed to her father, Tywin Lannister, is like ruthless and power hungry, but he seems to have a have a goal. Anyway, I, I feel like there's something there in the way our politics has changed to where now it just feels way more pointless, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Way more Cersei. It's not, it's not Littlefinger, you know, chaos is the ladder. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, don't have that vibe. How did I get trapped in the middle of a Game of Thrones conversation? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Galen, Risa, I didn't sign Risa, up for this. I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. None of this made sense. <laughs> I mean, I understand different types of power. And- also the fact that I tried to read the book and it's so violent. How are you listening to that on audiobook, Micah? Because once I've read it or watched it, it doesn't engage my brain. So I'm not like actually listening to it. Okay, to put a button on this conversation or at least shift it back to political <laughs> TV shows. Of the shows listed in this poll or any other poll, there are a lot of political shows in American television that were not included in this poll. What do you think is actually the most representative of American politics? Well, so it's funny because I was going to say The Crown is the most realistic show that they asked about because that show actually like tried to be realistic. I think that's a perfectly valid point. It's like that's the only show of these that is like truly based on actual events because it's in the past, whereas these other ones were supposed to be sort of taking place in whatever the present moment was, more or less. It was a weird one to include. No offerings for most realistic American political TV show? I feel like it's tough. Well, I haven't seen all of these. Also, why was 24 included? I mean, I, <laughs> it's pretty 24 political. is not realistic. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of politics. I mean, he's dealing with the president a lot. and Yeah, the president's on a lot of I've TV shows. I've never seen 24. Um, oh, it's, don't, you're, you're better off. I think it's like the trappings of West Wing, but the like insanity of Veep might actually be like the most realistic thing. I think it's the absurdity and nihilism of Veep mixed with the trappings of the West Wing mixed with the- Power politics of House of Cards. Moral rot, the moral rot of House of Cards. Wow, that's so dark. (laughs) That's really bleak, Micah. Is that wrong? (laughs) Tell me that's wrong. Yeah, no, I think you're wrong. I think it's a good take. Man, I feel like I'm a little worried about your mental health, Micah. This is what we do all day. <laughs> I think it's I think it's legitimate to say that there's like probably a generation of people who work on the Hill who were inspired by West Wing and like wanted to be Josh Lyman or CJ Craig. You know, there was a time in my young life when I thought that was what I wanted to do. And even though the West Aww, Wing is Jeffrey. like, is so like hopelessly earnest and- uh, It doesn't age well. <laughs> no, it's aged very poorly with our current era of politics because things are so polarized and ugly, frankly. And it's like, oh, let's fix this thing. And it's much more hopeful about American politics, which is where, you know, it runs off the rails. Uh, <laughs> But that earnestness that shows up in West Wing, I think, does describe some staffers on the Hill who are getting started, you know? Sure. And what do you guys think about Parks and Rec? Because that's also very earnest, also more recent. Also, I've seen it. So (laughs) happier to talk about that than the characters whose names you're throwing out and I have no idea who they are. But also, like, local politics is increasingly becoming polarized in a way that, you know, maybe when Parks and Rec was on the air was kind of hard to imagine. Do you think Parks and Rec was ever realistic? I don't know if it was, but I'm curious what you guys think. 
Well, maybe in Indiana, but from what I understand about the NIMBY and YIMBY wars in California, it's uh, it's been pretty crazy out there. Yeah, it's interesting because how would you describe does Parks and Rec, it doesn't present actually a totally wholesome view of local government. There's plenty of people in that office who yeah. aren't really there to serve the people, right? They yeah. have their own stuff going well, on. There, there's a corrupt city council and there's like sexual harassment. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair, Micah. No, but maybe that makes it more accurate. That sounds realistic. Yeah, no, it shows the earnestness colliding with all of the reasons that you shouldn't be, like, earnest and hopeful. Yeah. Right? I will say, also, the town forums on Parks and Rec are some of my favorite TV. And I have never really gone to town meetings, but, like, that must be what city bureaucrats deal with all the time. Well, if you've seen some videos of people acting crazy at a county commission meeting or something, you know public time and people will get up at the mic and just start, you know, saying weird things. I mean, that actually does seem realistic. And it's funny to me that in the poll, Veep and Parks and Rec as the two like clear comedies, they scored poorest on realism. But yeah, maybe the reality is that some parts of those are actually more realistic than than what the other shows have going on. Is this just like all about genre and people just think that dramas are realistic because they're serious? So, okay, it's the absurdity of Veep plus a little bit of that of that nihilism mixed with the trappings of West Wing, mixed with the kind of moral rot of House of Cards, mixed with the dash of earnestness and true public service to be found in Parks and Rec. How's that work? Sure. Are we trying to pitch ourselves as consultants for political <laughs> TV shows? Because, Mike, I think you've got to make your pitch less complicated. <laughs> I'm trying to work everything in. All right. I'll t- we'll take it. We'll take it. we got to talk about the Democratic primary lineup. Overall rating, Micah, you gave it an excellent. Jeffrey, you gave it a pretty good. Amelia, how are you rating this poll? Sure. <laughs> sure. I'll take it. I love it. They did it. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Speaking of interparty debates that sometimes seem suited to an episode of Veep, earlier this month, the Des Moines Register reported that the Democratic National Committee entertained a draft proposal to change the presidential primary calendar affecting which states vote first. As I mentioned, the proposal was not ultimately considered at the committee meeting in March, but I'm sure this is not the end of the conversation, which means we get to keep having ours. Under the current lineup, the first two states, Iowa and New Hampshire, have populations that are about 85 to 90 percent white, while the Democratic electorate is about 60 percent white. The Democratic National Committee draft proposal offered a number of new criteria that would help determine which states go first under a new scheme, including ethnic diversity, geographic diversity, union membership, running a fair and transparent primary, and general election competitiveness. Jeffrey, you analyzed how the states rank according to those criteria, and we're going to discuss that. I have also asked you all to come up with your own lineup of the four states you think should go first, which we will get to. But let's begin with the criteria. Jeffrey, why these five criteria? Well, I mean, I think some of the things are are what have been debated about when talking about Iowa and New Hampshire as very white states leading off the Democratic primary, the Democratic Party being racially and ethnically diverse, having two very white states. So to include, you know, ethnic diversity, racial diversity makes a lot of sense. That's like a key criticism of having Iowa and New Hampshire lead off. 
So that one's pretty straightforward. I think with the fair and transparent primary, that's especially in the aftermath of the Iowa caucuses in 2020, Democrats were already moving in that direction of, of really prioritizing primaries. Because in the end, Is that only just like subtweeting I- Iowa with that criteria? Yeah, I mean, essentially, essentially it is because yeah. in 2020, only Iowa and Nevada ended up using caucuses. And Nevada just actually passed a state law last year to implement a statewide primary going forward for presidential primary. So Iowa might be the only caucus state left, really. So given what happened in 2020 as well with Iowa and the fact that we like, couldn't get results and that was this big mess, you know, it's sort of like are the knives sort of out for Iowa. So the fair and transparent primary thing is kind of understandable as well. General election competitiveness, you know, in theory, it's good to spend your party organizing energy in a state that could be competitive in November. And then you get obviously geographic diversity. You know, right now, actually, one of the benefits of the current calendar is that you do actually have geographic diversity. Iowa's in the Midwest, New Hampshire's in the Northeast, Nevada's out West, and then South Carolina's in the South. So you do actually sort of check the box for that with the current four that lead things off. And then lastly, you have union membership, which I think might surprise some people. But at the same time, if you're sort of looking for a way for the Democratic Party, which has long been closely associated with labor unions in this country, and you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about, you know, you know, on behalf of working people in the United States. And while labor union voters are not maybe as democratic leaning as they once were, they still lean democratic. And labor unions are very powerful within the Democratic Party. They give a lot of money to candidates, they they run a lot of ads and do a lot of outside spending on behalf of candidates. Their endorsements are sought after by candidates uh, on the Democratic side very strongly. So, you know, maybe it makes sense to also have that be uh, a component that they consider important. Micah and Amelia, are there any criteria here that might be worth considering that weren't included in this draft proposal? I mean, I would throw out a couple of things. The one argument Iowa and New Hampshire have have used to maintain their early state status, which I think does hold some merit, is the retail politics argument, which is to say that both states sort of require the candidates to really meet voters face to face. I think there's some benefit there. I would also add going kind of in the opposite direction, maybe the parties should consider how expensive the media markets are in certain states, one way or the other, you know, either to say we want cheap media markets to make the field more inclusive or we want expensive media markets to make sure the candidates who are doing well can raise money and have party support. I don't know, Amelia, do you have any any other things you would add? One of the things that I did question a little bit is like, why general election competitiveness should matter so much. I mean, I can see the argument for it. I think on the other hand, if you're talking about a primary, give some voice to the people who live in more heavily democratic states as a sort of fairness issue rather than a political issue. It seems like maybe you want to throw a couple of heavily democratic states into that early mix. The other thing that's weird about that is I think the argument for having the primary in a competitive state is some mix of, one, you get a lot of exposure for your candidates in a state that's going to matter. But two, if you can do well in that state, that's a competitive state, and therefore you can do well 
in the general election. The tipping point state that's going to decide the Electoral College. But one doesn't actually really follow from the other. I mean, there are like, there are purple states where the respective party bases are actually quite extreme. And the reverse too, right? Like New York, for example, with a big Democratic electorate can be relatively moderate compared to the Democratic electorate in other states. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you would quantify the sort of like idiosyncratic nature of the Democratic electorate in different states, but it is different, you know, if you're going to put like Massachusetts first. I also think, I mean, the regional diversity thing seems important also just because having politicians from different parts of the country matters. I don't know. One thing I've wondered about is why you need to have the same order every four years. Like, can't you mix it up? I don't know. It's just the whole idea of having this set thing where every year we go down the same list of states. I also think it would make more sense if states voted in groups. Mostly, I think the way the DNC does this makes no sense. Okay. So, Jeffrey, you crunched all these numbers. You went criterion by criterion and looked at how the states rank according to those. And then you added them all together to see if the DNC really tried to implement this kind of scheme, what the lineup would look like. What did you find? Basically, I I found that Nevada scores very well, scored best using these criteria, minus geographical diversity, because I think that that's kind of hard to measure. I think it's more of a which states they choose would then provide that geographical diversity. But if you scored the other things, primary access, diversity, union membership, and general election competitiveness, Nevada came out on top. So it's already an early state. Makes a lot of sense as an early state, given those criteria. Um, I also found that New York and New Jersey scored very well. New York was actually almost even with Nevada. And so, you know, that would be a big change. It's a very, you know, New York's a big state very expensive media market, at least in the New York City area, which is where, of course, most of the state's Democrats live. New Jersey and the Philadelphia, New York markets also would not be cheap to advertise or campaign in. But I think you can make a case that those states have a lot of diversity, a lot of union membership. They don't have too much general election competitiveness in presidential races, at least. But they do have those other things going for them. A state that I found was really fun was Hawaii, which came in fourth. They don't have a state-run primary. Um, There's no presidential primary law in Hawaii. So in 2020, there was a party-run primary. And so those didn't score as well because they're not quite as accessible as a government-run event. But nonetheless, it's like, at least based on what I used, which was the Census Bureau's diversity index, it's basically the most diverse state in the country. It also has the greatest percentage of its population that belongs to a union. So in that way, it scores really well. But of course, it's also not at all competitive in the general election. So, you know, if you just took the four states that sort of led each of the major geographical regions, you'd get Nevada in the West, you'd get New York in the Northeast, uh, you'd get Michigan from the Midwest, it ranked in the top 10, and then you'd get Georgia, which was just outside the top 10 in the South as the highest ranking using these criteria. And of course, this is very much a back of the napkin sort of math exercise. And we have no idea how the DNC would actually go about weighing any of this. I suspect they would have a secret sauce of sorts and would not be quite as methodical with the math. (laughs) I have one more thing to throw out there just to think about how much does how rural or urban the state is matter? Because it would be really different if New York City was 
part of the first four states to decide, or if you had one of the first primaries in Illinois, if Chicago was part of that. So I think we're used to like Iowa and New Hampshire, obviously pretty rural. Nevada has Las Vegas. South Carolina doesn't have big urban centers. I think we're sort of tilted away right now from states that have big urban centers. And it would change things a lot if candidates were trying to campaign in a city like Chicago. I factored in 538's urbanization index into my early state rankings. I think you're right, Amelia, that that makes a big difference. It's a dividing line in our politics these days. So, you know, New Jersey actually recently pitched itself to the DNC as a a good early state choice, in part because it's racially diverse, it's urban, but it's actually not geographically that large of a state. So it wouldn't be that hard to campaign in from sort of end to end, except for traffic, maybe. But, you know, if you're thinking about sort of what you're getting at, it's a very urban state, more urban than Nevada, for instance, even though Nevada does have Las Vegas. So that was something that I, I know came up while I was writing the piece. Does this not feel like choosing a city for the Olympics? Like, this is how this feels to me. (laughs) In in a way, yeah. Um, Out of curiosity, where did New Hampshire, Iowa, and South Carolina rank? Of course, Nevada ranked number one. But how off from these priorities is the current lineup? Well, Iowa ranked very poorly, in part because it uses a caucus still. But even if you, like, took that out of consideration, it scored poorly on the other things as well. Though general election competitiveness, it is in the grand scheme of things still much more competitive than a lot of states are. And then like South Carolina and New Hampshire were more sort of middle of the pack in the ranking. Okay, so can we just take sidebar for one second? How realistic is it that the Democratic Party will make changes to its calendar lineup? And does it need the Republican Party and state legislators in all of these states to sort of be on board with whatever changes it wants to make? I think the short answer to this is that it's unlikely that what we like laid out here would ever happen in this way. And the other part of that is that, no, I don't think most of those other important actors in this whole thing are going to go along with it, which is what makes the challenge of changing the calendar so trying. And it's so difficult. It's not a top-down thing. It's very much a two-way street. Uh, You're interacting with state actors, whether it's the legislature or the state party, and they're pushing back on the DNC. So, you know, if Republicans have Iowa going first in 2024, which looks to be the case, that's going to probably also make it harder to just remove Iowa because there's going to be a lot of media attention on Iowa. And it just might be easier to take the road we already know than try to force a change. But I will say that Nevada, having established a presidential primary law to challenge New Hampshire's position may already force a change. Um, We'll see how how that all plays out. But um, they're threatening New Hampshire's position and New Hampshire is going to jump in front of them. So we'll see what happens. It feels to me like it's more likely than it maybe has ever been, but not very likely. But there definitely does seem to be more support for changing it than I've seen in, in quite some time. The other thing that I could see happen is the primary calendar itself not change much but the interpretation and use of the results of that calendar change a bit. And I think you're already seeing this. I think for in the, in the Democratic primary, for example, in 2020, the impact of Iowa and New Hampshire and Biden's poor performances there was blunted by the fact that everyone knew these were not representative states of the Democratic Party writ large. So 
no matter what order the states go in, there's no iron law that says how those results have to affect the primary, right? It's all interpretation and narrative and, and that stuff. Yeah. I feel like what people really have their knives out for is not just Iowa, but the caucus, because the caucus was just such a disaster in 2020. Mm -hmm. So, Jeff, is there a way for Iowa to get rid of the caucuses and still go first? Like, I know Iowa doesn't want to get rid of the caucuses. They love it there for reasons that are a little hard for me to understand. But like, what would be the implications if they wanted to say, okay, everyone hates the caucuses, we'll get rid of them, but we still want to go first. Do they then get into a fight with New Hampshire? Yeah. I mean, look, New Hampshire has a state law that basically gives the secretary of state their full discretion to move the date to keep it the first primary. And the reason that Iowa has been able to go before New Hampshire is because Iowa is a caucus. And so they're not like in conflict on that point. Like New Hampshire is the first in the nation primary. But if Iowa were to change to a primary system, it would obviously come into conflict with that. And I also think the fact that the caucuses are so beloved in Iowa means that you're not going to see state legislature there establish a government-run presidential primary. There is no presidential primary law in Iowa, and I don't think there's going to be one anytime soon. So really, it's then sort of left to the Iowa Democratic Party to figure out a way to follow Iowa's state law, which actually basically says the precinct caucuses have to happen before any other presidential nominating event, but also try to be more inclusive. Setting aside some of these barriers to actually making changes, I am curious which four states you all think should go first. So Amelia, what did you settle on in terms of your first four states? So I say keep Nevada. As number one. Well, I, I don't know. I was like, do we have to do the order too? I think they should all go as a group. I think okay. it's like ridiculous that we do like one by one for the first few. Well, it gets into this weird thing where when you when you go to a state like Iowa, there's like this this thing of like the people there are so aware that they are setting the tone for the rest of the primaries. And it's just like creates this incredibly strange dynamic. And I think you should have four states go at once because then there isn't this sense that Iowa is deciding for the nation. Like that is how people there think about it. And it leads to some very weird thinking. All of the electability stuff in 2020 where people were like getting in their head around like, I like this person, but I don't think they can get elected. So I'm gonna vote for this person. I think if we just had four states go together, take the pressure off everyone. Okay. So I didn't think about order. (laughs) I'm like happy to fight with people about that, I guess. But like, I think the order is dumb. So I had Nevada. I said, switch out South Carolina for Georgia. For a Midwestern state, I'm going to push for Illinois. I have Michigan written next to it with a question mark. So I am like open to debate, but I'm going to go with Illinois because I think having a big city is important. And I think Chicago is a good city for this. And then New Jersey. Interesting. And I did, I will say, I've lived in two of these states, (laughs) which I saw after I had written this out. So perhaps a little bit of bias got in here, but I think those are good choices. That is a very, very close to the criteria that this DNC memo sort of laid out. Micah, how do your four states compare? So I chose six states, so I already broke the rules. Um, First up is... New York, which is not only diverse, but it's diverse in in a very similar way to the country overall, actually, which is really good. Also, it has like a big city plus 
upstate, more rural areas, has a really expensive media market. So I think that would help give the party decides people more of a say, you know, would weed out some people who couldn't raise money. I think we've learned that however many people may loathe the establishment when the party does decide, it's usually for the best. High union membership in the Northeast. Going to get some comments on that one, Micah. (laughs) Next, Mississippi. Rural South, large black population, more moderate Democrats, obviously really conservative Republicans. Next, Hawaii, as Jeff was talking about, ranked really highly in terms of diversity, but specifically large Asian American population, small. Also, reporters, we would get to go to Hawaii. Hi, you. Yeah, I, I take that. As <laughs> yeah, I agree 100%. with you, Mike. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, I'm with you, but also hard to get from island to island, though. I know that's another like financial barrier for the candidates. If you have a helicopter, you can really retail politic it. But otherwise, it's kind of Listen, hard. I'm using financial barriers to try to give the establishment a bit more power. So come at me. Hack my no, hack. Other, Hawaii, <laughs> yeah. um, high union membership, as Jeff said, out west. Okay, here's a good one. D.C., urban, highly educated, mid-Atlantic, also Give D.C. some say. You know, they don't have representation in Congress. Let's give them outside say in the presidential nominating contest. I think people in D.C. know too much about politics. I think they would get way too much in the like, again, like the like, I like this person, but like, I think this is how the election is going to go. Like, I'm I live right outside D.C. I love D.C. I I do not think they should go first. You have to look at my plate as a whole. Everything is balanced, okay? Well, are so they all are they all voting at once though, Mike? I'll come back to that. Okay, well that makes a difference. After DC is Colorado, Mountain West, large Hispanic population, and then that's followed up by lastly Wisconsin. Tipping point state competitive. It's pretty middle of the road in terms of education, urban index score, not as diverse in the Midwest. So basically That's a cornucopia. Yeah. So you start with the state that is really representative of the country, actually. And you end with a state that's representative of the country, but in different ways. And in the middle, you go through states that exemplify different parts of the country. Because I still really love, as a fan of politics, like you could just create a calendar, here are the most representative states of the country in order. Or to Amelia's point, really what you should do is just have every state vote on the same day. But we're not talking about that. So that's my order. From a sociological, political science, elections analysis standpoint, I kind of love that. And from a, we get to travel to Hawaii standpoint, of course, too. And then I think you could say like, you know what? 50% of the field has to drop out after Wisconsin or something like that. All right. Wait, what? (laughs) Forced winnowing, (laughs) required winnowing. Jeff, we're going to end with you. You have gone deep into all of this data, uh, what four states did you settle on? For me, I think Nevada stays. It has large share of voters who are Hispanic, but it's also just a very diverse state in general. Las Vegas gives it some urbanness, so there's that going forward as well. For the Midwest, I thought actually maybe Minnesota might be the best choice. It's a democratic leaning state, but it is competitive. And you have the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, so you have some urban, but there's also a, you know, a lot of rural areas to visit in Minnesota as well. So it seems to me like it has some of what Iowa has, but it has a bigger city than what Iowa has to offer mm-hmm. or a bigger urban area. 
for the Northeast, and I tried to go by the four census regions. So for the Northeast, I have New Jersey. I don't love it, but it also scored so well on my numbers that I felt like uh, I got to pick either New Jersey or New York. And I think New York is just so big population-wise that I I think there is maybe some case to be made that you want a state that's not just massive. And while New Jersey is definitely populous, it is not New York-level populous. And it is geographically not that big. So, you know, you can get around there if you're campaigning. Uh, Very expensive to advertise in, but it's very urban, very diverse, and not that big. And then lastly, and this was tough, there isn't a state in the South that really jumps out besides Georgia. And Georgia, I think I worry about it being almost too big if there's a bias towards smaller states going first. So I actually think maybe sticking with South Carolina is not the worst idea. If you're thinking about the influence of black voters in the Democratic Party, it's a state that really checks that box in a way. I appreciate all those. You said that you didn't like New Jersey. Was that just like (laughs) A sort of like ad hominem attack on New Jersey, or are there other reasons? That you don't no, like New no, Jersey? it was more of it was no, 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 it was more just like, is it a little bit too big for what I was getting at? Like, New Jersey is a very okay. populous state, and so if I was thinking, but it was like that, or do I pick, I don't know, Connecticut? But Connecticut doesn't score as well as New Jersey, Delaware. There was a plan actually in the early 2000s to make Delaware the new leadoff state. Oh, throw Delaware a bone. That's great. Delaware is definitely in like the Acela Corridor, but is it really like the Northeast? So if I was thinking about geographical diversity, New Jersey felt a bit more. This is why I like Illinois, though, because like it's a very Democratic state, but the Democratic voters are overwhelmingly concentrated in the Chicago metro area. So it's a big state. It would be annoying to get around the entire state of Illinois, but you have a lot of people in one relatively small area. Like Chicago's quite diverse. And it's not enormous like New York. I totally agree. Micah's New York bias was unacceptable. Like have a big city that's not New York City in the first handful of primaries. Like if you start with New York, then it's just like you're done. Might as well have everyone vote on the same day. All right. Well, we are going to leave things there for today. I'm sure people have thoughts on this. We would love to hear them. We'll also pick back up when the Democratic Party picks this issue back up itself potentially. And I think also, you know, as we get closer to 2024, we are certainly going to talk about the Republican order of states. It doesn't seem like there is much motivation to change the calendar within the Republican Party, but it's still worth looking at how representative Iowa and New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina, for that matter, may be of the Republican Party. So we will get to that all in the future. But for now, We are going to move on to our discussion about public opinion on refugees, which our colleague Laura Bronner is going to join us for. So I'm going to let you all go. Thank you, Jeff, Amelia, and Micah. Thanks, Galen. Hey, thank you, Galen. Thank you, Galen. Thank you, everyone. I love you all. Let's have that discussion in just a minute. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries, backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 3.7 million refugees have left Ukraine, and another 6.5 million people have been displaced within the country since Russia invaded, according to the United Nations. That's over 10 million people displaced from a country of 44 million. It's the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II and its aftermath. Last week, the White House announced that the U.S. will accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. As of now, Americans seem open to that. An Ipsos Reuters poll from early March found that 74% of Americans support the United States taking in Ukrainian refugees. Likewise, support for accepting refugees in Europe has been very high, between 70 and 90%, depending on the country. Here with us to talk about why those numbers are so high and how the refugee crisis may play out politically going forward is 538 contributor Laura Bronner. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And you've looked into plenty of data on how countries react to influxes of refugees. So let's dig into that a bit. First and foremost, I think some commentators have suggested that the West is more likely to support accepting Ukrainian refugees despite recent political fights over refugees because they are largely white and Christian. And there's some data on this that may play a role but your research shows that it's more complicated than that and can change over time. So how so? Yeah, so to start with, the research does show that race and religion do play a role when it comes to what kinds of people the public would like to see in their countries. So there's a study that was published in Science in 2016 that shows that religion is actually one of the major factors. People are 11 percentage points less likely to want to accept an asylum seeker who's Muslim compared to one who's Christian, for example. And so, so that is clearly something that is playing a role here. Another thing, though, is the gender composition of the group of Ukrainian refugees that's currently coming to Europe. Men, I think, between uh, the ages of 18 and 60 aren't allowed to leave the country because of conscription. And so a lot of the refugees that are coming to other countries are women and children and elderly men. And we know from that same science study from 2016 that gender is another factor that really plays a role. People are much more likely to accept female asylum seekers than male asylum seekers. And so the fact that compositionally, the group of Ukrainian refugees is overwhelmingly white, Christian and female obviously plays a role in terms of those are the profiles of refugees or of asylum seekers that people are most favorably inclined towards. 
But there's also other things. I mean, this concept of deservingness plays a role. So, so which refugees people see as being deserving. So we know from that same study again, that victims of torture or political oppression are much more likely to be welcomed than, than people fleeing, for example, for economic opportunities. And that factor is, is pretty clear here as well. There's pretty clearly a, a reason why people are fleeing. It's in the news a lot. And there's also this European solidarity element that there's a political reason to accept refugees that stems from the sort of emotional impact of watching this Russian invasion on a European country. There's a lot going on here, both in terms of identity, as we discussed, and, you know, situationally, we have been watching war play out for over a month at this point. And so the reason why people are fleeing couldn't be more obvious. You know, in past conflicts where the result has been uh, migration of refugees, that's also sometimes been the case. And of course, you think most recently to the influx of refugees as a result of the Syrian civil war. Was there initially a similar level of support or at least majority support? What was the response then? I think that's a really good example. And that's a really good point of comparison because you have a lot of similarities and you also have some differences. And so I think that's quite illuminating. At the beginning, I mean, it's it's a little bit hard to remember now because things did change. But at the beginning, there was a lot of support for Syrian refugees in particular in 2015. So to give some background, the Syrian civil war started in 2011 and there had been refugees from before then, also from other countries, obviously. But 2015 saw a huge spike in terms of the numbers of, of asylum seekers that entered Europe. And it was over 1.3 million that year, which was way higher than in previous years. And initially, there was a lot of public support for this. So in Germany and Austria, people went to train stations with signs and with supplies and, and welcomed people, much like they're doing now, actually, with uh, Ukrainian refugees. There were huge protests in the UK welcoming uh, refugees. And, and yeah, and polls also showed this. So there was majority support for welcoming Syrian refugees, for taking Syrian refugees particularly sort of towards late summer of 2015. It's not clear whether it was quite as high as now, probably not. It's hard to compare because the polling questions are a little bit different. And, and we know that the question wording really matters here in terms of, of how much support people say they have. But we do know that it was clearly majority support in a lot of these countries. Again, perhaps not as high as now. And, and perhaps that is due to some of the things I mentioned earlier about race and religion and gender and other factors playing a role. But there was more support at the beginning than there turned out to be later on. How did that evolve? Was there a clear turning point? And if so, what was it? And where does public opinion stand today? There were several turning points. Um, there were unfortunately not as many polls done as we would like it. Um, there never to are. To there study never it. Are. No, I know. There, there could always be more polls to study it as granularly as, as we would like. But it is pretty clear that there was initially some level of support. Then I think in late August, if I'm remembering this correctly, of 2015, there was this picture of a, a three-year-old who died on a beach. And that picture went around the world. It was, you probably remember this as well. Yeah. It was, it was in the news. Shocking, horrible. Uh, yeah. It was shocking. And then that really changed the narrative, I think. I mean, I looked into this a little bit. There was a huge spike in donations to the Swedish Red Cross, for example. This, this really sort of changed also the media narrative around, around the wave of refugees. And I think basically that incident led to like a nine point increase in France in a poll in terms of the number of people supporting taking Syrian refugees. So that was one turning point. 
Then there were some other turning points as well. There was a terrorist attack in Paris. Following that, polls showed a drop in terms of the willingness to take refugees. And there's a research paper that essentially shows that migrant shipwrecks and terrorist attacks both drive changes. That paper was actually looking at asylum decisions. So asylum officers granting asylum applications by refugees. So that showed that there was actually an an effect of shipwrecks and of terrorist attacks on how willing asylum officers were to approve people's applications. Yeah. So I'm curious, this is, of course, the European context and Europe experienced this much more intensely than the United States did. And once again, Europe will continue to experience the influx of Ukrainian refugees more intensely than the United States did. What has American public opinion looked like? Of course, right now, you know, three quarters of the country say, let's admit Ukrainian refugees. Was there similar support for Syrian refugees? How, you know, did things play out in the U.S. while these conversations were happening in 2015 and beyond in Europe? There wasn't. So back then, I actually just had a look at some polls. And back then, it was pretty close, but a majority of people did not support accepting Syrian refugees at that point. So this was in late 2015. It did seem to shift at some point, and by 2016, there was a slight majority in favor of of accepting refugees. But again, this is kind of around the halfway mark, so around 50%. And as you might imagine, there are pretty big partisan differences in the U.S. as well. It sounds like time changes things. And in looking at the data, and you're you're writing an article that's coming out this week on 538.com, there are sort of like historical examples that we can look at that even when it's a crisis that's happening within Europe with people who are white and Christian and, you know, maybe fleeing war, that basically time changes everything regardless. What's the evidence for that? To some extent, the best evidence we have is 2015. It was very recent. There are a lot of polls. But there are also instructive examples from earlier on. So one of the examples I I looked at was the case of Hungarian refugees in Austria in 1956, So after the Soviet invasion of Hungary in in 1956, almost 200,000 Hungarians fled, uh, mostly to Austria, which was the one sort of Western country that bordered Hungary. And initially, again, there was a lot of support. I mean, this is like pre-polling, so the evidence is a little bit different. But it did seem that there was a lot of support. Um, There was also a lot of very positive international press that Austria seems to have enjoyed at this point. But essentially, after quite a short amount of time, Austria asked other countries for help in taking a lot of these refugees and also public opinion towards these refugees seems to have shifted. So ultimately, only a very small fraction of these uh, refugees ended up staying in Austria. Many moved on to other countries. But by that point, a lot of the initial goodwill seems to have have shifted. There were worries about crime. There was envy of of some of the perks that they were given. I think similarly to today, there were some attempts to give them sort of free public transportation and stuff like that, which pretty quickly became something that some people did not like seeing, that they said they could afford it anyway, and and that kind of thing. So given some of this history, what should we expect going forward in this crisis? I think that, you know, there are differences between how people see Ukrainian refugees and how people saw earlier waves of refugees. And race and religion 
is a big part of that that will remain on those dimensions. There will continue to be a difference. But at the same time, we do know that public opinion shifts. We do know that it's responsive to media reports. I imagine there will be some issues with refugee resettlement, as there always are when there are bureaucracies at work and people who have just gone through difficult times. And I imagine that as those issues get coverage, some of the initial goodwill towards this group of refugees may curdle. Of course, that's speculation and we don't know. At the same time, you know, we should remember it, it did start at a higher level and my guess is that it will remain at a higher level. All right, well, we will keep track of public opinion on this question and, and see how things play out. Of course, you know, at this moment in time, the absolute horror and catastrophe that's happening in Ukraine is so obvious and so apparent in the news every day. But Laura, thank you so much for doing this research and sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that is a wrap for today. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vanezki is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. 